Welcome to Highway Diary. I'm your host, Eric Hollerbach. For the second time, a massive guest. This is Highway Diary, episode 320 with Earl Skakel. Great to be back for more, as Rat would sing about back in the day. And uh, I'd like to, before we get going, extend a personal thank you to you last week for picking me up at the Austin airport. Hey. With gifts. Most comics wouldn't even pick you up. Uh, you uh, got me a bottle of water, some nuts, which I could not eat due to my oral surgery, and a cowboy hat that actually fit my head. So uh, thank you for the hospitality that you showed me last week. Gus Freundschaft. Gus Freundschaft is hospitality. That's what I'm about. Um, look, what does it cost me? This, this, I gave you this exact bottle of mineral water. This is 40 cents when you buy a grip of them. But keeping it cold is only forethought. And then the cowboy hot, I'll be honest, I got it at Goodwill for about $4. So, uh, you know. Um, well, I'll be honest with you. I left it at Red Band's house. So uh, You son of a bitch. It's uh, will be with me in Austin whenever I will return, and I will return. Well, um, I hope to see you again. I feel like, uh, you know, I went from a Palmer to a buddy, you know, overnight. So that's what I'm about. I'm a douchebag social climber. I know when I have the people's roast battle champion. I know when I have this CIA at the comedy store, you know, in my city, you know. I mean, uh, I, I'm like the Matt Drudge of L.A. comedy. I have moles everywhere. Nothing happens. Uh, and there's that very famous scene in the movie Heat. And I pardon my lisp or whatever's going on. I'm, I'm speaking a little not in my natural dialect. But uh, when you have like eight to ten hours of oral surgery, you talk a little different. There's that famous scene in Heat where De Niro has offered the plans to the bank. And he asked the guy, how do you find this information? And the guy just looks at him and goes, it's all out there. You just got to pick it out of the air. Yeah. That's me. So, so let's talk about your twofers. There's some information I picked out of the air. You had gum surgery, back-to-back -back four root canals, back-to-back -back a cat fell off, back-to-back -back more oral surgery. I think you're paying for the whole strip mall, Earl Skakel. Well, uh, it was a lot of, I thought I took good care of my teeth. Not that your fans want to hear about my teeth, but uh, it's, uh, I will never, I will go and follow the dentist instructions to a T because I never want to have what I have had the last two weeks ever again. It was, uh, the gum surgery was the worst part just because they, to prevent uh, bacteria from invading your gum space. They essentially cut your gums open and pull them down uh, and then restitch them. And, and so uh, it, it's very painful. Like, uh, it, so, uh, but I'm, I'm back. My, and the dentist is a comic. And so I was scared because I thought, oh man, this guy's just moonlighting as a dentist. He's and a part-time dentist. And, he, and, you know, as a friend, he'll do you uh, three surgeries back to back. No, he's a full-time dentist, and okay. Uh, okay. he's really good. He's, like, really in the, let's just say, eight hours of overall surgeries I had. 
I literally did not feel one second of pain. Um, so, and he's really funny too, to be honest. Like, so I'm going to try and help him uh, as best I can. Uh, but if you need dental work, uh, Mr. McDonough is the guy to go to because this whole staff, it's in Brentwood. So it's legit. It's not like he's in some mini mall. Uh, so I'm, I'm very happy that it's all done with. So he was palming for you for spots around LA. Is that what you, he said? I'm here. No, he didn't even ask, which is what oh. I love. But uh, I'm oh. like, dude, I'm going to help. But I love that. Like, he, 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 we never once brought up comedy. And, uh, you know, he, uh, I will help him in whatever way I can, uh, which, you know, I'm, I'm not very powerful, to be honest with you. But, uh, you know, I got some uh, sources that run rooms and whatnot. So, oh, interesting. Um, you know. Plus, he'll be handing out his business card. It'll be embarrassing. He'll be like, you know, you know, hey, look, uh, you know, I'm just joking. I'm being a dick. We had a conversation about ethical palming. How do you be an ethical palmer, Earl Skakel? Remember that at the Vulcan? I was like, you know, I don't like talking to people. I don't really like anybody. You know what I mean? But I guess you have to go out. You have to shake hands. You got to kiss babies. You do. I mean, uh, it just you can't. Uh survive and uh i don't know about austin comedy i'll assume it's sorry my my dog's fired up right now uh you, you can't make it in this business on your own you you just can't everyone palms uh, uh you know i've palmed periodically from time to time uh and uh if there's a, it's an art form uh whitney cummings uh has um she is the Wayne Gretzky of Palmers. Uh, and I mean, that as a compliment. I mean, it's really, you know, Whitney and I started together, uh, more or less. I think I might have even started before her, but uh, she has this talent to this day of walking into a room, say of 100 people, and within two minutes, she can figure out who can help her. Uh, and go right up to that person and make them feel like they're the only person in the room. Um, I saw it at Clusterfest uh, when she was backstage. At, I was doing a roast battle uh, and, you know, it was a big, uh, big crowd backstage. And she was literally there working the room. Uh, so uh, did she have any mineral water or anything like that? Any cowboy hats or anything like that? I don't remember. I was in a dress about to battle Robin Tran. So I, um, I wasn't paying attention to what was in her hands, but uh, she, uh, she's the best at it by far. It's part palming, part politician, part, uh, you know, knowing how to navigate. You know, if you're friends with someone that the other person hates, it's how to broach that subject. Uh, you know, and it, it's it's a really fun thing to watch live someone palm and uh, do it well because uh, it's it's definitely a skill that any comic probably in any city, New York, Austin, L.A., wherever, Canada, I'm sure. I mean, I saw it at uh, just for last when uh, you know season one of Roast Battle. It was a complete palm fest. I mean, it was out of control. Uh, and you saw some good Palmers and you saw some bad ones. And 
uh, you know, that particular festival roast battle was the last show of the night. So everyone went to it. So the after parties and, and the after show festivities were all just networking. It was like a WrestleMania of networking. It was fun to watch. Um, I recently, uh, you know, was palming outside the Romo room and I ran into some kid who had like a degree in social media, maybe communications, but like a, a specific social media degree. And I was like, you know, talking to this person, maybe I can upgrade my social media presence. You know, let me pick this kid's brain real quick. And he said some things and I agreed at first, but then I've been thinking about a lot and I think I disagree. Now, what he said was. Always find out when people come home from work, post then, 6.30 to 8 p.m. That's when people come home to work so that you're the first tweet out there. Post three times a week, minimum. Do, get a TikTok, this and that. And they had this like, you know, kind of algorithmic way to speak. And I just had this, it flashed in my head um, when I was at Thanksgiving with, you know, my one wino aunt and then my educated aunt and then the, you know what I mean? And it wasn't the person that spoke the most often. It wasn't the person that spoke uh, that was the most demanding. Uh, it was the person that had something to say that I was interested in. And so, you know, what do you think about, I don't know, it just got me thinking like maybe I'm behind the times. Look, I'll, I'll speak up when I have something to say, but uh, maybe I'm not out there, you know, hobnobbing like Whitney Cummins, you know? Well, I mean, uh, in terms of like the algorithms of like TikTok and uh, Instagram, and, uh, I mean, you could look up uh, on Google best times to post on whatever website and you'll get 10 different articles that say 10 different times. Uh, so it, it's and they all make sense. Like, uh, you know, I read one article specifically about Instagram. Uh, you know, post pictures in the morning when people are checking their phones. And then I read one post at five o'clock Pacific time where people on the West Coast are, uh, you know, just getting off of work, checking their phones. People on the East Coast are at home watching TV. Uh, and then uh, my fiance, uh, who's brilliant at uh, social media she's like no put an instagram picture out at two in the afternoon our time pacific standard time and it worked like it, i went from maybe on average 75 to 100 likes when i would post to 150 to 200 which is a lot for me uh, silly to talk about 200 likes when you see rogan getting literally two three hundred thousand but um so it's an art form and uh you know, it, it's it's tough with social media because there's so many opinions about it that uh, you could find, I'm sure, one uh, article that says post at four in the morning when people are getting up in the East Coast. And so it, it's it's tough to that's a tough one. I don't think it's what you post or when I think it's be interesting, have good content. I think that's the only thing that I care about. That's why. Yeah, I prepare for podcasts and I try to, you know, I don't know. Uh, well, that, it's, yes, post something interesting, but I've also learned uh, through my fiance, the quality of the picture helps. Like, you know, I took a picture yesterday on Instagram, or she took it, I should say. 
uh, a me line next to the skeleton saying uh, before and after 20 years of LA comedy. Uh, but the picture, she, she has a the most current iPhone. It, it looks like it was professionally done. Um, and uh, so that helps because when I was, uh, I guess, single or whatever, and doing my post on my own, uh, I would just take them, uh, you know, with my iPad camera, which isn't bad, but it's it's not an iPhone camera. And, and you know, the pictures were uh, of not as good a quality. So it, it's, I'm still learning, you know. Uh, so like I'm lazy with my TikToks, you know, I, I'll do a joke with no back, you know, I'll do a joke of the day with no background. It's just me literally right now. And uh, her TikToks are you know edited there's music there's graphics there's uh, and she has uh followers her average likes on her videos are you know 40 50 000 likes whereas mine are you know i'm lucky if i get 100 so it's I, definitely the more work you put into it and the more thought uh, your social media will uh, propel you into the comedy world because it's uh I know uh, when I signed with my voiceover agency three years ago, and they're the top agency, uh, their first question was, how many followers do you have? Like, and, I'm like, and to myself, I'm like, uh, well, doesn't my voice, isn't that like the selling point? <laughs> you know, so uh, it's definitely we're in that era now of uh, talent isn't necessarily uh, important as important as your social media following. Look, Daddy only does the pay-per-views, you know? I just well, I mean, you know, my I'm getting better at social media, but like, if you've got, if you're a super funny person and you only have, say, 10,000 uh, followers on Instagram and you've got a TikTok guy or girl who has a million followers on, uh, on TikTok and they're not funny at all, that person's going to get booked 99 times out of 100 over you. Because the club just, you know, I don't have to tell you about the business. The club wants the seats filled. Uh, so they'll worry about the repeat business the next time. So, uh, you know, it's an interesting minefield you have to navigate, uh, you know, in terms of uh, social media following and, and how to build it. Yeah, you know, and, and you whispered something to me that put... Uh, your uh how, how do i say this cryptically you, you whispered something to me we had the whole last podcast was about um you know your perceived mistreatment by certain entities out there in show business and you know they were saying they were tapping you on the shoulder after a roast battle going you can leave now you can leave now and you know what well, that's I, not perceived that's huh? not perceived that happens like so what i'm I, not making I think that there, uh, I think that these people that, you know, these entities, these legal entities that, you know, got a uh, uh, roast battle into their IP surreptitiously while there's people that built the show, um, they were intimidated by you and they wanted to get rid of you. I think that's why you didn't get season two and three because you had a legitimate stake in the claim. And then these middlemen, these managers, these not funny, like uh, lawyer douchebags, uh, you know, understood your power and tried to intimidate you away from it. That's, that's what I think. Crazy. 
Oh, I think you're right. But that's the crazy thing is uh, with any show, not just me, uh, you, you know, I, I've seen so many TV shows, uh, comedy shows, because certain people wanted to uh, be the king of the show, like they didn't work with the best people necessarily. And so uh, that hurts the show ultimately and costs them money. Uh, you know, down the road, I mean, in terms of roast battle, that's a simple concept. It's two people who know each other, hopefully battling. And, you know, that is what made Yo Mama so good. You know, they MTV got it. Okay. Two people who know each other, and that show lasted eight, nine seasons uh, and didn't really have much of a drop off in terms of the quality of the show. Roast Battle was almost uh, jumping the shark on season one. You know, we need Ralphie May, I, who I love, and his anniversary of his death was yesterday. And I would say this if he were alive he's a great comic, but he was a horrible roast battler. Uh, so it, it was like, we don't need Ralphie May. We need a person who's good at roast battle. And that would have, like, it wasn't fun to see Ralphie get killed by Mike Lawrence. It, it, it just was like, this isn't even entertaining to watch. It's sad. Uh, so, I, yeah. Uh, you know, you know, I saw some squash matches, you know, in the early days, you know, with celebrities popping in squash matches. That's what was exciting for all the open micers in the back, Palman, going, oh, this guy's got a big ego, Captain Hollywood balls, but fucking Connor McSpadden rips him apart like nothing. You know what I mean? So that's also an element that was fun. And I don't think Ralphie knew that he was about to be in a squash match. Uh, but, uh, you know. Well, I don't think he cared. Like, but that shows you how brutal this business is, is the certain entities that were in charge of the show. They knew Ralphie wouldn't prepare, and they, they put him in a bracket with Mike Lawrence, who is like an autistic roaster like he when he's roasting you he devotes his whole life to it like he sleep he wakes up he writes jokes about you he, he is having sex he's thinking not about the sex with his wife he's thinking about roast jokes about you uh so they they you know that shows you how fucked up this business is like if they had any uh dignity or whatever respect towards ralphie they would have said, okay, let's put him in a bracket with Tiana, me, and Henchcliffe, who we all knew him. We'd probably all three beat him, but it would be like almost charming to watch. You know, with Mike, he was like Rambo in the hardware store, no mercy. Like, it was brutal. So, uh, but, you know, that's why, you know, the show didn't last. Well, you know, yeah, I think I just want to be clear. You, Moses, Jay Light, Coach T, Jamar Neighbors, Jeremiah Watkins all had a stake in that show. I just hope that they broke off some per percentages for those people. Um, uh, I can assure you they did not. I will answer that right now. But, you know, it's. But, how, but, you know, what if you're just, you know, in Bangkok, Thailand, you know, will show business find you, you know? Well, show business You're in a fucking restaurant in Bangkok, Thailand, you know, in the corner, people will find you and you will be a star. You cannot go unnoticed in stand up comedy. If you're extraordinary, it's in, it's impossible. How long were you trudging it out? 
getting paid no money, being a house racist at Rose Battle, doing the Barris Kennedy overdrive with Brody Stevens till three in the morning. How long did it take you to get a showcase to get past the Bikami store, Earl Skakel? 14 years. So, and it was complete luck because uh, Adam Egot uh, was the booker at the time at the comedy store. And it's about 2013, 2014. And he had seen me about three years earlier in Tempe, Arizona, opening up for Rob Schneider. Jeff Richards was uh, featuring, I was the host. And uh, I'm not going to lie, I didn't kill every night, but I did pretty well, which. You know, you've opened up for celebrities before, uh, especially with uh, someone like Rob Schneider, where he's so iconic. You know, the, the copy machine guy from SNL, Deuce Bigelow, the animal, the hot chick, you know, the literally 50, 60 movies he's been in, probably more than that. Uh, you know, and the, and the whole room is there to see Rob. Like, it's very hard to get laughs when everyone is like, Okay, uh, this guy or girl, they're okay. Where's Rob Schneider? So uh, I did better than most people, I think, uh, under those circumstances. So I Adam remembered, and when he got the gig as Booker, uh, yeah, his exact. I don't think he would mind me saying this. Uh, he was like, "Hey, everyone's telling me to pass you." He had like big name comics coming up to him, Delia and, and all these other people. Uh, so you got to pass Earl. He's been up here forever, blah, blah, blah. And uh, he's like, I I'm going to showcase you. I can't just pass you. You got, you know, I just, I can't do that. But, you know, you'll be my first showcase. And uh, I did, uh, I put so much time and energy into that six minute set. Uh, for once, I planned it out. I tell this joke in my head. It was like, because in a five, six minute showcase set, doesn't seem like, how hard can that be? But it's hard because you don't. Um, it's like you know, twelve it's like jokes, fifteen. You know, it depends how fast they are. Well, it's like a TV set, you know. It, but the the danger is, uh, if you lose the crowd at any point, you don't really have time to get them back, uh, and you, you can't really do crowd work because it's too risky. If it doesn't go over well, you you have no time to recover. So um, I remember when I did the showcase, it was almost. Uh, First of all, I had a panic attack and 20 minutes before my showcase, I was, and I'm not making this up. I was on my bathroom floor, completely naked over the toilet, sweating bullets. Like, and I never sweat, like even in hot yoga, I barely sweat. I don't know. It must be a genetic thing. Uh, I was. Yeah. I mean, it was, uh, I couldn't breathe and I literally, I look up at the clock. I'm like, I've got to be on stage in 15 minutes. I'm not even dressed. I just forced myself. Maybe it was my mom from above forcing me to get ready and look presentable in 15 minutes. And so when I did the showcase, every comic at the store came in to watch. And uh, it was uh, like probably my... Probably my second favorite memory in 20 years of comedy was just there was such a uh, support. For once, there was a supportive vibe, and we want her all to be passed. I mean, it was, I still get like not choked up, but like it, it still means a lot to me that every big name comic from Sebastian to Delia to uh, 
everyone who was on Bobby Lee, Eric Griffin, Santino, everyone went in there to uh, silently root me on. And it was, uh, it was a pretty cool night. You were playing uh, both sides of a regime change, a very stark regime change between Tommy Morris and Adam Egan. More on that later. I uh, want to talk about Tommy Morris a great deal of the second half of this interview. I want to talk about professional wrestling. You know, there are allegories you can learn in life from professional wrestling, you know. Uh, there's something, there's a term called being a good worker. You know, when you are on uh, a lineup with Rob Schneider as the headliner, you don't really shit on the room. You don't really shit on Rob Schneider, right? You're a good worker, you know. Well, I mean, some headliners are like, hey, don't do crowd work. That's my thing. Or don't joke about um, uh, politics because I, I have 10 minute uh, opener on, you know, Trump or whatever. Rob was awesome. Uh, even a couple months ago, uh, maybe it was about six months ago, uh, maybe, maybe a little longer time. You know, this pandemic has me kind of losing what time is. Uh, but I opened for him uh, on a few shows in Ontario and Irvine. And uh, he's like, just talk, do what you want. I don't care. Like, he doesn't care. Like, he's going to get laughs no matter what. So I could talk about Trump. I could talk about uh, dating, uh, hockey, wrestling. He doesn't care. Like, uh, he's one of the few comics who's big enough. Rogan, uh, Russell Peters, uh, you know, maybe a handful of others who... It doesn't matter what the opener does. Doesn't matter if they bomb, kill, just do good. Uh, their fan base is so rabid that uh, they're confident enough in their own act where they can uh, let the opener do whatever they want, and it's not going to affect their uh, performance. So uh, I'm, I was lucky with Rob. He's always been good to me in that regard. Uh, speaking of being a good worker, there's a comic in Austin called Chris Reese, who I think is hilarious, but he's a he's a bad worker. Like he was in we were in Taylor, Texas, Marshall's Tavern. And he goes, what do I care about a bunch of fucking dumb hicks in Taylor, Texas right now? And then this audience member is like, you're in Taylor, Texas. You know what I mean? They were kind of getting offended because he was just shitting on them the whole time. But if he walks on stage, I'm going to run from outside inside to watch him because he, he's a rough worker. He's a rough worker, you know? And well, there's, uh, oh, no, no, I mean, well, I mean, uh, there's a subtle art to a tough room, which, uh, you know, my 14 years before I got past the store trained me, like, no crowd's too tough for me. Like, uh, because all I did for 14 years uh, was bar shows, um, gay rooms, where I'm the only straight comic, where the, I'm the only straight person in the room. Um, you know, I didn't do a lot of black rooms, but I did do some and I survived. I did uh, some Hispanic rooms where I'm the only white guy in the room. Uh, so like the other night at the store, uh, the OR was particularly tough. I mean, it was brutal. Every big name comic was coming off stage going, wow, man, that was tough. And I went up there and I probably had the best set of the night because like to play a full OR, even though it was a rough room. Uh, I'm like, hey, I've been in rooms where there's dart game being played, pool tables, uh, pinball machines going on right by the stage. This is easy for me. So, uh, you know, uh, I, I don't do rooms like that anymore just because it, it, it 
uh, you know, I've, uh, I'm not too good for those rooms, but I just, 20 years into comedy, I don't want to battle the room anymore. Not that I want an easy room. I, I mean, who doesn't, but like, I don't want to battle with sports games on and, you know, a video poker machine by the stage. Uh, you know, I just, uh, I'm, uh, I'm just at, at my age, I'm, I'm, I don't have the energy for that fight anymore. How's the Percocet uh, affecting your, you on some pain medication? Was that giving you like, I don't give a fuck attitude? It did that night uh, because that was, and this shows you what a warrior I am. Uh, and it, it goes to the worker part of me. Uh, I, the gum surgery I had, uh, most people, the doctor was telling me only get two sides done and then they come back. But I was like, just give me all four sides. It's just banging out. And uh, it's a pretty brutal surgery. Like like I said, they, they cut you, pull the gums down, put uh, this like bonding cement. I mean, it's literal cement to, to close the wounds. <laughs> they give you all this medicine. They give you uh, amoxicillin for the infection. Uh, they give you uh, 800 milligram uh, ibuprofen, which is crazy because like Motrin is 100 milligram. Like they're giving you eight times the strength of like super strength Tylenol. So, and as you know, I don't, I don't drink. I don't do any drugs. Never have. So when I have like the amoxicillin and the 800 milligrams. And I think by accident, I took two each that first day. I was, I was flying high as Ozzy Osbourne would say. So when I got on that stage, I literally, and, I, and it's not that I want to do drugs, uh, but Jason Galern's always like, dude, you're funny, but if you smoked a little weed before you went on stage, you'd be the funniest comic in the world. I kind of now know what he means because I had so much... Uh, loopiness in me that I, I just commanded the audience. I was like, Hey, listen, I just had four hours of gum surgery. I'm on double the amount of pain meds that I should be either. You guys get on board or, uh, you know, or else, but I'm going to be here for the next 15 minutes. So get with it. And they loved it because it was, it was kind of like the opposite of your buddy who shit on the crowd in Texas. I was shitting on them, but in a funny way. Like, there's an art to getting the room on your side. He's a rough worker. And, and like, you know, you got... Yeah. Chris Reese is mentally ill. Oh, He's a rough worker. Yeah. But I, I love well, you, We're all mentally ill. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's... Uh, but it's... There's a skill because, you know, you got... I was intimidated, right? But, you know, I'm standing in the OR hallway and I'm seeing every big-name comic in the city. And they're big names that night. Uh, just defeated and, and just running to the parking lot to smoke a cigarette or whatever. And I'm like, oh boy, this is not the night to face a tough room when I'm like basically high for the first time in my life. Uh, but, uh, you know, they loved it because I, I was basically like the bad guy in Superman 2 where I just willed them to kneel before Zod. And I was literally like, you guys will get on board with Earl and, uh, and it was fun. So uh, I've got to find a way to do that naturally. 
or smoke weed, cocksucker. I'm smoking weed right now. Uh, there's plenty, uh, you know, there's a lot of marks out there. They're buying popcorn. They love comedy, comedy fans. But what if, you know, you just broke a couple necks? Like, what if one of your colleagues, like, broke a couple, like, 20% of the necks that he fucked? And what, I, what I'm alluding to is Brock Lesnar, I just watched this. He broke uh, Rob Hawley's neck September 2002, you know? And then they were like, should he get banned from the WWE? He's breaking people's necks. But he sells the most pay-per-views, you know? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, there's... Uh... The guy's watching, uh, sometimes, sorry, something's being drilled uh, outside my house. I don't know what's going on. Uh, well, it's West Hollywood. I have a guess what it is. Yeah, no, it's actually, I think, construction work, but who knows. But I was watching, uh, uh, there was a wrestler from the 80s and 90s who was known to be an incredibly stiff worker, and he hurt a lot of guys. His name was Vader, um, huge guy, and uh, he broke some guy's back, like, on a, doing a power bomb, and he didn't even really care. He pinned him. You could clearly tell the tell that the guy was saying, "Hey, I'm hurt," and Vader didn't care. Uh, but because Vader was popular, uh, definitely probably the best heel uh, from that time frame. He didn't get in trouble, you know. Uh, so it, it's uh, you know it's the same way in comedy. Like you you can do things as a stand up, but if you fill seats, people don't care. You know, it can be any number of things. Uh, so selling seats is really, um, you can get away with. I think literal, that's how. You can get away with literal murder. OJ Simpson could get, some comedy club would book him. Uh, I'm not kidding. Probably the comedy Chateau in North Hollywood. Uh, they seem to book uh, some interesting acts. Um, they would book O.J. Simpson, not because he's a great guy. Obviously, most people think he decapitated two people, but that show is sellout. So that's all they care about. I feel like in a weird way, Roast Battle maybe culturally pushed Trump into the White House. The, uh, the power of what was going on in the belly room pushed Trump in the White House because he's like Rosie O'Donnell, fat pig, loser. Hillary Clinton, you know, she she went after the women that her husband molested. Loser, you know, and it was like, you know, he filled well, the auditoriums. It is that mindset. Uh, because in regards to that show, it's really not joke writing. It's just bullying. You know, uh, how, how do you call someone fat before they call me old? Uh, how do you call... Uh, someone a whore before they call you not funny like it's just timed bullying is what that show has always been about uh you know um and speaking of speaking of timing okay i was alluding to earlier there was a uh, regime changes you know and you can make gains at the comedy store but also your local club you know when there's regime changes hey if you're the first comic who shows up in the in the new regime Maybe you can get the spots you ask for if you have a plan. You know, it's timing, it's preparation, it's regime changes. So at first, Mitzi Shore was the first thing that was called like the talent coordinator position at the comedy store. What do you infer from what it took to impress Mitzi Shore in a showcase? Uh, well, I don't, I mean, I never showcased for Mitzi. I, I really only met her once and I really, 
I wouldn't even say I met her, you know, we were in the same room. Um, I mean, I think with her, uh, from what I've gathered from, you know, people like Argus who I've talked to and, uh, she had, you know, she's like any other booker, Adam, Tommy, uh, Emily, uh, Paige at the improv, like they have their favorites and, uh, it just, some make sense. Some don't, um, I think, uh, you know, uh, I mean, she you can't deny the talent that she showcased, you know, Letterman, uh, Leno, uh, Jim Carrey, they all started at the store. Uh, so uh, it was a pretty Tom Dreesen and, uh, you know, Tim Thomerson. Uh, you know, they were great comics. Uh, and then, you know, she had a few that probably weren't, but, you know, she, I think she liked almost to create a, a circus type atmosphere, but, you know, this was the seventies and eighties, you know, it was wilder times. And so you'd have a comic, like say the, the little person, Tanya Lee Davis on a lineup, you know, and not the funniest comic, but, oh, she's a midget. Uh, this will be funny. And, and then, uh, you know, let's have Sam Kinison bring her up knowing that Kinison would, like maybe not give her the greatest intro but it'll be you know it'll create an atmosphere in the room so uh you don't see that as much today you know like with adam and uh emily and, and Paige specifically i think you see pretty much okay these are the 12 comics i find funny um you know so and they're built in an order of uh you know what makes sense to them like last night it was a great end of the lineup i mean it was a great lineup but the lineup went uh toward the end uh rick ingram who's great at crowd work uh and then brian simpson who's like one of the younger uh, uh favorites of the comedy store and he's a brilliant comic and then sarah tiana and then me so uh you know though it, it's like it's a nice build uh you know there's not like uh i don't know someone missing an arm put in the lineup just to have a funny visual on stage it's uh i would say that's the biggest difference between mitzi and, and current bookers is there's not as many novelty acts you know willie tyler and lester i don't know would work today but they were a huge under mitzi uh, you know uh, back then so uh and, and you know dice and kennison were there too like she, I think, was a little more uh, avant-garde in her talent selections. Um, so, yeah, there's regime changes. And, uh, you know, it's weird learning how, you know, certain people get to their position. So it goes Mitzi, Tommy, then Adam. Let's, let's focus on Tommy a little bit. Um, he, there's a hint of how Tommy Morris from inappropriate earl episode 93 how, how did tommy ingratiate himself into the shore family because mitzi and i had spent so much time together people love to jump over the fact that i spent 10 years three days a week putting her to bed most of the time alone talking speaking absorbing helping psychologically <laughs> journeying through with mitzi shore I bathed her. I clipped her toenails. I shaved a mustache. I waxed her back. He put his time in, Tommy Morris. 
I mean, he did. I mean, it was a great uh, two for one. I could see why he was kept around because it was like, okay, he can book the club and, and take care of Mitzi. I mean, I do believe he loved Mitzi. Uh, take away his uh, shortcomings as a booker to most people that, you know, he loved her and, uh, you know, he, he took uh, good care of her. So I, I could see why uh, the people in charge of the store um, were like, hey, what? Let's keep this guy around. I mean, I massage in her feet. Shouldn't he be at the comedy store fielding complaints from comics that aren't getting the spot they want when Eddie Griffin is doing three hours and 45 minutes in the main room? Shouldn't he be like managing that instead of like massaging Mitzi's bunions at night, bathing her? Yeah, but I mean, you go back to uh, filling seats and, and, and that uh, Eddie Griffin was a big star at that time, so he could he could run the light, he could do whatever he wanted, and you know it's like what are you going to do? You, you tell him not to do that, he's going to go to the Improv and fill their club or Laugh Factory. So uh, I mean, you can uh, get away now. He couldn't do that now because he's not quite as big, and I guess you'd say his his star is dimming. But uh, you know, it's. Uh, you know, Tommy was an interesting dude. I mean, he, uh, the crazy thing about him was he wasn't very technologically savvy. I, I really don't, this is going to sound like a roast battle type joke, but like, I don't think he had a computer at home. So he wasn't really up to date on, uh, certain comics. Like, I think it was, uh, Andy, who's that, uh, guy in SNL, Andy. Andy Samberg, thank you, uh, Chandler with an assist off camera. He, uh, I think he was hosting the MTV Awards or something, and he, he uh, very nicely walked up to Tommy in the booth and like, hey, can I run my set, my monologue, or, you know, the opening, uh, I guess, monologue, and Tommy didn't know who he was. Like, even I knew who he was. I'm like, oh, that's the guy from SNL. Uh, and Rob Schneider, uh, he told uh, Rob, he work him in on potluck like what that's insane like whether you like rob schneider as a comic an actor whatever like he's a star like one of the few people uh, who you put his name on a marquee it's an instant sellout like i worked with him for four years and never once did he not sell out a room like not one time was there empty seats even during pandemic when we played a baseball field in Ontario that was bone chillingly cold I mean it was Canada cold you couldn't have fit another car in this parking lot um told Bert Kreischer who had already had I think two specials out to work the parking lot uh <laughs> you know it's just like what so I, I don't think he was up to date on who was doing what. So in hold, terms of hold him, your horses. Yeah, you can do 15 years on SNL and have five movies, but things take time. She got on me for being too kind to untalented people. And she she beat on me about that. She wanted me to be mean, but she wanted me to avoid things. And she also wanted me to realize that sometimes things take time. Look, you know, Bert, what, why well, can't he work the parking lot for three years? Things take time. Well, he, what he, and you know, I, 
I have a weird relationship with Tommy. I, I guess we're friends now, which is most people would think we hate each other, or at least that I hate him because uh, the way I was jerked around for years by him. Um, but uh, he just wasn't aware of, you know, this, you got to understand, this is at a time when uh, the main, the, the OR on a Saturday night, now it's completely sold out. Back then, I'm telling you, there were 40 people in the room, if that. Um, so he just, you know, he was passing guys who gave him weed and studio time and, and, and whatnot. And like Adam was the complete opposite. Like just the fact that I was Adam's first pass along with Candace Thompson, it was like his mind, you'd have to ask him, but I believe his mindset was, okay, uh, Earl's probably the least famous comic I can pass, but he's funny. Like, he will get last whether I put him on first or last. Uh, so he's going to get stage time here. He can't offer me anything. Uh, you know, and it's like, okay, I'm going to give Rob Schneider spots. And, and not only was there, the, not only was there a regime change at the comedy store, but there was a regime change on the internet. Suddenly Rob Schneider getting 20 million views on SNL wasn't happening when all these big comics started doing their podcasts on YouTube. And though that was garnering more viewers than freaking SNL, you know, while he was but like, Adam had a plan though. Like, you know, cause I think Adam had a computer at home and, uh, you know, he realized, okay, if I bring back Joe Rogan, Joey Diaz will come back. Uh, and they have huge podcasts at that time. Those two podcasts were just, I mean, they were big, but they were just kind of, they weren't even peaking yet, but so uh, that helped. And then, uh, okay, if I if, if I give Rob Schneider spots, maybe Sandler will come. If Sandler comes, Spade will come. If Spade will come, Swartzen will come. Smat, uh, was, yeah, uh, social mathematics. So, social mathematics. Yeah, yeah. If I give Jeselnik time, uh, you know, he'll bring the young fans in because uh, Anthony's very popular with, you know, younger fans because uh, he's young himself. Uh, and so it was a, the complete opposite of, of how to run a lineup was one had no idea who anyone was virtually. And then Adam had, you know, uh, a understanding of who was popular. And if you bring them in, they'll bring their friends in, you know, Norm MacDonald will show up, et cetera, et cetera. And if the, the unknown people I pass are funny, that's the next wave. Uh, and so, you know, it was a slow build where, you know, Tommy just, um, I, you know, I just think he got lazy in some ways and uh, just ran the club on autopilot. And, uh, you, know, uh, you know, the results were what they were. Yeah, but he had a lot of shit going on. The only thing I will say before we go any further, too, is that the only thing that did happen to me is I came, became weakened, I'd say, my last six months because of a lot of personal stuff I was dealing with. And that's one of the things that made me become vulnerable. And that's one of the it's it's not the only reason I'm probably not there anymore. But in L.A., as any of you know, venturing, you can't be vulnerable. Once you are, then that weakens you. And that came to be the end. 
Dan to be the end. He had personal problems, not because he didn't have a computer, not because he wasn't in touch with the comedy scene. It was, he had personal problems. He became weakened, he had less testosterone. He became vulnerable. Then the vulture started picking at him when he showcased vulnerability. It was an emotional thing. He was rubbing Mitzi Shore's legs every night. It was an emotional thing, you know? Well, I do agree with him. Like, you know, he's not an idiot. Like, you know, uh, that's a true statement. In L.A. comedy, and I'm sure it's the same in Austin, New York, wherever, if you show vulnerability to other comics or whatever, the vultures come and attack. They're like, you're weak. And so uh, I do agree with him on that, to be honest. Uh, it was a dominance thing. It was a dominance well, I, I think he had pissed so many people off. Uh, you know, like in my case, he told me to just hang out. It's like, no, I'm, I want to go up. Like, uh, like hang out. Like, what? Uh, and I think this was his mindset in terms of, like, passing lesser-known comics like myself is uh, – one day, one night, a uh, bunch of comics didn't show up on the lineup. Sebastian, uh, I think he was filming a movie or something. And then, uh, you know, John Caparillo didn't show up and he got two spots. So there's like no one there to go up. And everyone was like, hey, put up Earl, put up Earl. They started chanting Earl, Earl. And uh, so I go up and I was so pumped to be on that OR stage. I, I rarely kill. Usually I do well. But I, I was just put so much effort into it. I killed. And uh, he said, good job, you know, whatever. And then uh, the next night, Tommy wasn't there. Same thing happened. A bunch of people didn't show up. And all the comics in the back, put up Earl, put up Earl, 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 Earl. I go up and kill again. I was just, you know, it just, it's like a rookie getting their shot at running back for the Patriots or whatever. So the next night, I'm sitting in the uh, door guy uh, chair leading into the uh, hallway in the back. And I see Tommy walking down the hallway, and I'm like, oh, my God, he's going to pass me. Like, I've killed two times. I, I'm in. And he just looks, goes up to me and goes, yeah, you're only allowed to go up on potluck. Don't ever do that again. I'm like, like what? Like, Yeah. You can take it. You can take it. And I'll be glad to answer individual questions on any comic and how I feel about it and why I did this, why I did that. And we'll tell the truth. We will tell the truth. But that's the thing people always want to be afraid of as a comedian is the truth now. Don't ask me the truth because I'll tell it to you. It's not that he wasn't well, there. It's not that he had, you know, other things going on. No computer. He well, was he is trying but once again, though, he like, I agree with him. Like, comics are afraid of the truth. <laughs> like, uh, you know, so like he is such an enigma to me still. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it's, you know, on paper, we should get along. He's in his 50s. I'm in my 50s. We both like 80s metal. Like, he was there. He was booking bands in Tampa that I listened to. David Lee Roth and things of that nature. But, uh, you know, I, I just think, you know, you got to understand, even back then when the store wasn't doing well, to be the booker of the comedy store, it's still... And will always be, in my opinion, the number one club in the country. It's just if you ask any comic 
where do you want to be passed at? You can pick one club in the country. Some might say the cellar or the stand, but I would say in general, most would say the comedy store. Like it's just got the name, it's got the history, it's got just uh, so much uh, energy attached to it, good and bad, that you want to be a part of it. Um, so energy, energy. Well, that's what that's what Missy was about. She was about vibes, energy, crystal balls, healing. You know, healing things. Missy said she got to the point in her life where she didn't even have to see someone go on. She just look at them and see how they move, how they talk as a person, and she could say whether they have it or not. She got to the level, Earl. She got to the spiritual level where she didn't even need to see the monkey do the little joke dance. She saw how they held themselves, how they spoke to other people. Your past. I don't like you. Come back. Oh, I mean, the first time uh, I had any indication of how she ran things or whatever was when Duncan Trussell, who was the booker at the time, um, he calls me out because he had seen me at open mics and coffee shop rooms do pretty good. And he's like, hey, do you want to showcase? And I probably wasn't ready at the time, but I was like, yeah, of course. And he calls me back the next day and said, hey, I brought your name up to Mitzi. She said, uh, she doesn't want to showcase a Kennedy. <laughs> like, I'm not a Kennedy, though. Like, that's like, so I, I do believe him when he said uh, she judged people comically on their look or, you know, their last name. Or, uh, but I'm almost glad it worked out because I probably wasn't ready to be a regular at the store at that time, which was about 2004 or five, I think. So it worked out in that regard. Yeah, but Tommy, to be fair to him, coming from a music background, booking musicians, he knew how to lay down a bus. That's what I was doing there, Earl. I was trying to keep it cool. Not like gay drama stuff, not like woman stuff. You talk that way to me, you're not going to come back. Even Mitzi would have banned someone like Matt forever, but I was cool about it. Uh, He was cool. cool. Well, I don't know about that, but, uh, you know, I think... Uh, a lot of his problems could have been alleviated if he was just honest with the comics, which I think I can't speak for all comics, but that's what I want. Like if I'm not your type of comic, uh, just tell me and I'll stop bugging. And I'll be glad to answer individual questions on any comic and how I feel about him. Why I did this? Why I did that? And we'll tell the truth. We will tell the truth. Wait a minute. I already played that clip. You're talking bullshit. (laughs) It was so good. It deserved to be uh, twice. Well, it is true, though. Like, um, you know, his problem was he would string people along uh, and it's just unnecessary. Like it it created so much of a burden of probably 100 comics showing up thinking they were having a shot because he told them to hang out. And the reality is very few, if any, had a shot at getting passed by him. So why, why string them along? You know, it's like, Adam, you know, I, I love his honesty with comics. You know, he would, I saw him tell many comics, hey, what you do isn't for me. Uh, I'm not telling you to not hang out here, but you're probably not going to be passed here. So at least they know going up there, hey, I'll have a good time. Maybe I'll get laid at the front patio or whatever, but uh, maybe I'll go smoke weed in the back, but I'm not going to get passed here. So I know that instead of 
giving false hope. Tommy gave out, in my opinion, his biggest problem was giving out too much false hope. It's just unnecessary. Well, he said on inappropriate Earl 93, what it took to get him to, for him to pass you. She goes, do you bring heat on the stage? Well, do you? She goes, if you do, you can sit here. You can go up there. She goes, if you don't, get the fuck out of the way. This is L.A. This is the big leagues. I'm looking at a freaking 75-year-old woman talking to me like this. Ah, so he was tough, but he was cool, you know? But, you know, it didn't matter if he brought heat on stage. Like, I mean, just because I'm obviously most familiar with me, uh, you know, uh, I brought heat on the stage a lot in front of him and it meant nothing. Like, um, so, you know, and I think Tommy, we still talk on Facebook from time to time. Uh, you know, like he just... You know, his truth telling ability wasn't the best. Like after that episode, he came up to me as he was leaving. He's like, Hey, I want you to know I, I told Adam to pass you first. And I know oh, that was his idea. That was his idea. No, yeah, it wasn't. He he wanted Adam to pass Jeremiah Watkins, like which is fine. But like like at that time I, I was already passed. I was like, why are you still like bullshitting me like i'm already passed i'm good like you don't have to like lie to me about i was your next pass or whatever i wasn't looking so, for like, allies looking for allies while he's taking these slings and arrows for the tower of mitzi shore well i will say that that uh and i know i think it was episode 95 he came back which episode 95 is like rocky too it's good, but not quite as good as 93. Um, like he was already broken at on 95. Well, I do think that I, uh, I think he and, and everyone who listened, who was a comic, was surprised. Because I think they thought, I just wanted to have him on so I could bury him for two hours. Why didn't you fucking pass me, you mullet-wearing bastard? But I let him hang himself. Like, you know, I, I probably said under 50 words in, that, in those podcasts combined. Uh, because I, in general, was curious as to why he operated the club like he did. And well, I think so, it's obvious. I think, yeah, he he had a background, Florida, its relationships, its vibes. They had it made where I was. I was a big fish in a small pond. I was living at the beach. I was managing a nightclub. I knew everybody. I didn't pay for a dinner anywhere. Everybody knew my name. They used to say I should run for the mayor. I was living a good life, but I took the risk. I came here. He was the mayor of Florida. He would go out. Oh, Tommy Morris, is that you? Do you want steak and lobster? Do you want to date my daughter? He was the king. Living on a beach. You know, you can get, uh, you, well, I mean, you think about it. It's when you book a club, you know, I think he booked the number one music club in Tampa, which, you know, some people are like, okay, that's awesome. But like, you know, bands come through Tampa, but. You know, you're the man. Uh, so, uh, you know, and, and then I can only imagine the ego of, of any booker of the comedy store or the improv or the Laugh Factory. Like, you have hundreds of people's dreams in your hand and you dish them out on a weekly basis. Uh, and you take away on a weekly basis. So, you know, especially now in a pandemic era where uh, I think state law 
at least in California, is you have to spend an hour between shows cleaning, cleaning the room and sanitizing it. So you can only have one show now. So the spots are even harder to get. You know, you've got one main room show, one original room show. And uh, on Tuesday nights, when there's, uh, I think, Roast Battles back next week. So now you only have one show in the OR. That's 12 spots among probably 100 comics who deserve it. And another 100 who are close to deserving it. So, you know, that's uh, just the fact that I still get spots is an honor for me. <laughs> I, I notice cultural differences also uh, with Florida. You know, for example, I have always had a computer because I'm from New Jersey and we have a good school system. And I would have to print my homework and hand it in like that. You know, in Florida in high school, you could probably just like fill out a coloring book or something, give the teacher some oxycodone. And you'll get right through, you know, so you don't even need a Florida uh, a computer when you're in Florida. People know your face. People know your name. They say, I know that guy. You want dinner? You want to be the mayor? You know, different town. Nobody does their homework over there. Um, let's talk about old references versus uh, the new wave of comedy. That's almost an honest son of a salesman. I don't want to sell products, but I like selling an event. I did it in Jacksonville. Well, well known there, not for no reason. Positive. I liked it, man. Jesus, Earl, I think I told you, we had Kansas at the comedy store. We had uh, we had Cheap Trick. We had uh, Little River Band. One of the 80s, uh, like Poison. Yeah. Or not the, owner, the owner there loved me. He let me use my artistic insight. I mean, we started off one way, and then in the 80s, I got to get Loverboy with all five original members. I saw that. I picked them up at the at the bus up. I saw the lead singer, Mike Reno, was this big, fat guy. And we had an older guy, George, working there, and he goes, that guy's fat, man, but why are the girls still talking to him? I said, because he can hit the notes, man. He can hit the notes. The old river band, you know? This is what it's about. This lifestyle. I mean, uh, but that's what made the store so big in the 80s was like all those bands. I don't think people got excited about the little river band playing or showing up at the store. But, you know, it, you know, the mid-80s at the store, you had like... Guys from Rat there, Poison, David Lee Roth, Van Halen, uh, you know, so it was, uh, he is right in that regard, but uh, I don't think he was the booker at that time, so he can't take credit for that, so. He booked uh, up you know, Tom, he, uh, <laughs> big river band, what are you talking about? He's, he's got his finger on well, the They were a big country band. Um. Let's talk more about Mitzi Short. Now I know why she did what she did. She's a freaking genius. She goes, when I find somebody with the gift, I give them an arena to develop in. If they work hard at it and they want it badly enough, magical things happen. Magic. Was Mitzi into the occult? That I couldn't tell you. Like I said, I didn't know her, to be honest with you. So uh, I don't know uh, what she was into, to be frank. But, Did she uh, feel like she, I, was, she was this kingmaker? Did Mitzi be like, I, you know, have this idea that she was somehow this catcher in the rye of society to give to Hollywood her chosen people? Well, I mean, uh, I, I think if I'm dying up here, did anything uh it really portrayed that era you know if you think about it when she was the king or the queen i should say she's king and queen um you know it's a probably 90 percent 
uh, male business, you know, from the bookers to the Tonight Show people to uh, network executives, movie executives, the TV executives, they were all dudes. So she was, I can imagine she felt quite powerful to be an attractive woman owning the number one club in the country. Like, I'm sure uh, she wielded a lot of influence over men, which probably killed those guys. The first time in their lives, they've had a woman hold their feet to the fire uh, and they had to take it. You know, it's this pretty sexist uh, business back then. Some may say it's still that way now, but um, you know, it, it, she had a lot of power over dudes, that's for sure. Uh, here's more of Inappropriate Earl, episode 93. The only thing she told me that if I felt I saw someone who was really talented, and they didn't have great work ethic, she said, for me to take that talented person and throw them in the middle of other more aggressive people. And she says, it'll, it'll rub off. So when he's making the lineup, he would take the talented comic and put them between two hard workers. Uh, but I mean, that makes sense. I mean, uh, I, I mean, even last night at the store, I, you know, I can't speak for Emily and how she uh, puts the lineups together, but like I felt pressure to, uh, and I'm certainly not lazy, but you know, when you're following Rick Ingram, Brian Simpson, Sarah Tiana, you got to deliver, man, because they've set the table for you to like close out the show in a nice way. Uh, you know, I think that's the main difference now uh, between the lineups today and, and his lineups is there's no soft spots on the lineup. Um, you know, everyone's on TV, everyone's working. And not that TV is the sole barometer of talent, but like there's not one person on the lineup who doesn't have something going on. Um, and you know, with Tommy, it would be like, okay, there's Sebastian, and then okay, the guy who gave him weed, and then there's uh John Caparillo getting two spots because he was kind of hot at the time, and then okay, there's the guy who gave Tommy studio time, and then there's uh, uh you know, this person who, I, I don't know, some random paid regular who hasn't worked in 10 years, but it's funny to see uh, him uh, or she on stage bombing. And then, uh, you know, a good comic. I mean, it was all over the board, Tommy's uh, lineups, where Adam and Emily, is, I think, are more working comic, working comic, working comic, working comic. You know, there's not a weak spot on the lineup. Well, you know, it's like comedy was like his side thing, but Tommy Moore's real passion was what? And then she just said to me one day, and this is important, Earl, this is important. She said to me, she goes, I've been thinking about you. And I go, okay. She goes, I think you should be a comedian. <laughs> I think you'd give it a nice twist. I said, you know, Mitzi, I've been thinking about that. But one of the things I've noticed, well, I've been here about people that want to do it, but you're like too, is they're obsessed with it. I am. And she said to me, she goes, that's true. I said, I will never be obsessed with doing stand-up. I know I can do it. I know I have the skill set. So I would be more wanting to sing, which is one of my main talents, and play guitar and stuff. But his main talents is singer, songwriter, musician. Well, I do like his music, to be honest with you. Like, it's not horrible. It's like a Tom Petty vibe. Uh... Uh, you know, and and he's a good guitar player, you know, but uh, I could never tell him that at the time because, I, you know, I didn't want him to 
I didn't want to palm them. I was a, a rookie palmer at that era, but uh, in terms of him doing comedy, I don't think that would have gone too well. But like, uh, that would have been about as well as me playing guitar. Um, so, uh, you know, I mean, I think, uh, you know, he was a little delusional with that line of thinking, but I can't say what Mitzi told him. I wasn't in the room, so maybe she told him all that stuff, or maybe he wanted, maybe he convinced himself that she told him that, like, you know, if you tell yourself something enough, it's, it's almost like it happened. So, uh, you know, I'm sure they, for three hours a day, talked about, I don't know, his talent or whatever uh, while he's taking care of her at home. But, uh, you know, he... Uh, he bathed her. He clipped her toenails. Music is his main thing. I just want to be fair to him. Like, I want people to be happy in life. You know, I want people to be happy. I want people to do what they're good at. And I just want to say the, the Rotane Yacht Club, uh, every Friday from 6 to 9 p.m., you can see Tommy Morris live doing his music in Honduras. Uh, there's two-for-one house wines at the time and a 10% discount on bottles of wine at the Rotane Yacht Club Fridays in Honduras. So that's where he's at right now. And that's the whole reason why I had you on my podcast. I texted you a photograph of Tommy Morris posting this uh his, you know, he got, you know, exiled kind of roughly, rough worked out of the comedy store. But now I think he's happy. Um, you know, you'd have to have him on to ask him if he's happy or not. I mean, I, uh, I can't imagine uh, he doesn't regret not being at the comedy store anymore. I mean, like I said, it's a very powerful position. Uh, so he might be more sane being in Honduras where he can be the king of the island or whatever. Do you think he has a good enough internet connection to do the Highway Diary podcast? He doesn't have a computer, uh, right? Or... I mean, well, I think that's what makes uh, the two episodes of Inappropriate Earl he did so fantastic is because... He doesn't do any interviews because I don't think he does have the internet capacity. Like, um, you know, it, it, it's like almost interviewing him twice. I felt like John Miller, the crime reporter in New York, who was the only guy to have a sit down interview with bin Laden. I mean, uh, you know, they literally flew John Miller, uh, who's written some great crime, uh, true crime books, uh, I think he was head of the NYPD uh, investigative uh, branch for a while. So he's got great stories. Uh, and they flew him in blindfolded, took him into Afghanistan in a cave, and they take the mask off. And he's like, there's been Laden interview him. Um, and that's how I felt with Tommy. Like, it was like, you know, this guy's a man of mystery still, uh, especially the younger comics in their 20s and 30s who didn't. You know, it's funny when we're all doing impressions of Tommy in the parking lot at the store. Uh, we were doing some last night, me and Rick Ingram. We were doing like a dueling Tommy's impression. And there were some younger comics going, man, I wish I knew who this guy was because this is pretty funny. And I'm like, well, you know, you just, you don't know what you don't know. So, uh, 
you know, he is uh, still an enigma uh, seven years after he was let go. Like people still talk about him for a lot of the wrong reasons, but like he was, a, you know, you can't deny he was a part of the club's history for uh, 12 or so years. So it, it's. Uh, I don't get all his references when Tommy Morris brings up the big little river band. I don't know what the fuck he's talking about. He almost he wanted to stay in L.A. Uh, after he was ousted from the comedy store. He was dismayed that he didn't have anything lined up. He goes, and let me just say this to you. He goes, you may feel valuable at your job. He goes, but if you were so valuable, why isn't your phone ringing? And I was like, you worked in a controversial way, pal. You did. He goes, so don't be expecting anybody to go offer you anything because they won't. And that's the only thing I can say is that for someone who could, I, a person like me could benefit Comedy Central. I could benefit HBO as a scout working in their development departments. They probably won't talk to me because I had so much negativity. I didn't get to leave being the talent coordinator at the comedy store to go to my next job. See what I mean? I got assassinated. What do you think about that? Well, he could have been a scout at Comedy Central or uh, worked in development at any network, any agency, but like, you know, he. You just can't piss off as many people as he did. Like you just can't. Like and, and you gotta have people want to work with you at some point. Like, you know, that's why like when I see certain comics and you know, there's a new wave of podcasters and comics who like to do this Howard Stern, Opie and Anthony type of uh, antagonistic humor. Uh and you know, it's almost like a roast battle style of uh, entertainment. And it's like, well, you wonder why no one wants to come on your show. Like, because people don't want to be made fun of or ask wacky questions or, or you know, so it, it's, you, people got to want to work with you. I mean, that's what made me survive uh, all these years is, you know, I got gigs, you know, with Booker's who probably didn't even think I was that funny, but it was like, okay, Skate will come. He won't cause any problems. He'll do the job. Uh, to varying degrees, uh, you know, versus well, let's get this comic in. But man, they're a headache to deal with. Like, I can't imagine anyone at HBO or Comedy Central or Netflix or Amazon Prime or any comedy related network, JFL. Uh, you think just for last would be like, this guy was the talent coordinator at the story. He knows everybody. Like, they'd reach out to him, but it was just like too much negativity. So that's on him because the, the way he, like I said, the way he would jerk comics around. He was know, a was rough just, worker. You know, you got to be a good worker. He's a little, he worked well, a little yeah. rough. He told people the truth that they didn't want to hear it. What well, does go to back to wrestling and being a good worker? Like how does Sting still get gigs even in his early 60s? He's still work, a working wrestler, and I guarantee you, now, yes, he's an all-time legend in wrestling, but I guarantee you it's because he's easy to work with. He shows up, he puts the makeup on, he'll cut a good promo, he'll make other wrestlers look good, uh, and, you, you know, because you do see other wrestlers and comics, it's really one and the same, they just kind of disappear. 
because no one wants to work with them. So, uh, you got, you, I mean, you got to have one or two enemies in life. Because if you're just kissing ass, you're never going to make it. Uh, I think Cat Williams said, if you have eight haters, get a ninth. Uh, but, you know, at the end of the day, you, you do have to, uh, whether you're a comic, a writer, an actor, whatever, you, you got to have people want to work with you. It's a small business. That the more successful you get, the smaller the world gets. And word spreads around like wildfire. Hey, this guy or girl, they're trouble. All right. I mean, there's just too many people where it's like, all right, if they're trouble, let's just get this person. So I think with Tommy, it was like, all right, too much negativity. Let's just work with Adam. He's cool. Or Emily or Paige. It's an amazingly, amazingly small world. I mean, I remember uh, being at the University of New Orleans and freaking Jamar Neighbors walks in to Siberia, like which was my home club at the time. Now it's called the Carousel Lounge. At the time it was called Siberia. I was there every Monday. And uh, as soon as Jamar walks in, I'm like, I give him my spot. I was signed up second. He was going to sign up 37. I go, no, Jamar, take my spot. Because, uh, you know, and it's like, because I see it's a small world. When I see my friend, I'm going to help him out. And I'm going to also have the knowledge of other scenes. So I'm going to go like, no, no, no. And uh, it it makes gains. I mean, yesterday I was at the Romo room. I uh, interviewed Dulcie Mack. And I go, oh, I'm having Earl on tomorrow. And she goes, oh, I love Earl's Kegel. And, you know, that shit goes so fast when you're nice to people. It's like, I'm in Austin. You were here one day and your L.A. friends already know you. You know what I mean? Because they're coming here, too. So comics move around. And the ones that are out there all the time working, uh, being a good worker, like they talk. You know, what else is there to do while they wait for their spots? Yeah. Well, you don't have to be a complete ass kisser, you you know. uh, I don't? Well, I mean, you know, you you can. I think if you're uh, if you're if you're upfront, people dig that. You know, like everyone I deal with, they know where they stand with me, <laughs> uh, and I think people like that. You know, uh, you know, it's a very fake business, but so it's it's hard to be real in a fake business. But uh, uh, I think if you work hard, uh, you know, and and you uh, treat people right. Like, I, I think that's the best thing I've done is in 20 years of comedy, I've never talked down to people because uh, I realized, like, you know, I did open mics with Whitney when she was a nobody. Uh, I did rooms with Jesselin, like, when he was just, just a comic in L.A. And, you know, and Natasha Leggero, we used to do open mics together. And uh, so if someone is going to make it in the next open mic you do or I do, uh, that's an open micer now. Uh, so it's, it's, it's best to be nice to everybody. Like, yeah. And my buddy, be- you know, my buddy, uh, I don't know. Do you know this name, Jeff Buck or Miguel Al-Baghdadi? Like these were my good friends in New Orleans and now they're in LA and they're running shows over there. Jeff Buck and Miguel Al-Baghdadi. They're great guys. So I don't know them, but, uh, right. you know, it's just, uh, you know, I especially coming from the roast world, I, I see a lot of comics shitting on other comics because they think it's cool. Uh, and I laugh at 
you know, like I knew Adam Devine when he was the, he wasn't even a door guy at the improv. He was the ticket taker. He was in the cashier booth. And I saw comics shit on him constantly. Well, what happened? He became a big star and he took care of the people, the comics who were nice to him and all the people who made fun of the, the lonely ticket taker guy at the improv. How dumb did they feel? So, uh, you know, it's just... Yeah, it's. I had. I was going down. I was going down the track of being a bitter douchebag. I'll tell you this directly, Earl Skakel, and freaking Tom Rhodes smacked me uh, straight about that issue. So you know, I was glad to have the right people in my ears and seeking the right advice. So uh, also Jackie Cation to a certain extent, and also Jimmy Schubert. Uh, when I was, uh, you know, I was going. You know, I'm a huge Opie and Anthony fan. I'm from New Jersey. So, uh, you know, I was kind of going down the being a smug douchebag uh, <laughs> track. It's a certain style will, yeah. sometimes, but uh, not everybody's Patrice O'Neill. Well, it works when you're uh, established in a, a, a star to a varying degree. Like, you can be a dick to people. You shouldn't, but you can if you're successful. But, uh, you know, just... Be careful who you shit on because, you know, there's another Adam Devine out there who right now is a door guy at the store uh, and probably everyone makes fun of or, you know, the, the parking lot. I remember when Stephen Fury was a parking lot guy at the store uh, and I could see most comics never tipped him, were very dismissive, get my car. Now he's a big comic, one of the shows, doing shows, headlining. Uh, he can help you, but you think he's going to help the people who like, Look down on him like he was a you know caddy at a country club. Probably not. Uh, the inappropriate Earl podcast. I highly recommend episode ninety three for your comedy store history. The People's Roast Battle Champion. Uh, Papa only does the pay per views. Earl Skakel. Where can people find you? Uh, it's very simple. Going back to my lack of social media skills, I. I'm at Earl Skakel everywhere. TikTok, Twitter, Facebook, MySpace, Instagram. Uh, and so uh, I do think, and I rarely, inappropriate Earl, of course, on Apple Podcasts and SoundCloud. I do tell people I'm horrible at promoting the podcast. Every comic, every booker, anyone, every comedy agent, manager, should listen to two episodes of the 330 or 40 I've done. And that's episode 93, Tommy, because it gives you an insight into the mind of a booker. And the episode I did with Barry Katz, which you let off this show with, because he gave you an insight into the business from a maybe the top manager of all time. And and very Tommy like in the sense of his controversial nature. Like uh, when I released the Barry pa Barry Pats Barry Katz podcast, I had a huge comic. I'm talking a top five comic reach out to me and go, "You can't release that podcast." And I'm like, "Why not?" And they were like, "He ripped me off. He, he did this to my friend in terms of business dealings." And I told this person, I understand but this episode is so good i have to release it so uh 
he along with Tommy, you should listen to those two episodes because it's a, and not from anything I said, as you probably learned, I said maybe 50 words in that first episode, if that, uh, and the same with Barry, it's a comedy education. Like it gives you an insight into the people who are in charge over us. So uh, if you only listen to two episodes of my podcast, listen to those. I screamed in my car listening to two podcasts in my life. Number one, Barry Katz on Earl Skakel's Inappropriate Earl. Number two, Carlos Mencia on Tiger Belly. When I say, when I listen to Carlos Mencia on Tiger Belly, I was screaming in my fucking car. So mad. That, that, anyway, but anyway. But you're right, because that's fat, and I know we got to go, but like, that, that's almost a Tommy level of delusion where he still doesn't get why comics don't like him. It's like, dude, you steal jokes. Now, I'll give him this. He's open about it, I guess. Uh, but it's like, that's he's why you don't have the reason. He's a victim. Oh, well, but I mean, stealing jokes is stealing jokes. Like, it, it's just it, in the comedy world, and, and I'm sure you have non comedy or non comics listening, you know, just regular people. It, in the in the stand-up comedy world to be labeled a joke thief is like being labeled a pedophile in, in prison uh like it's that serious to comics um because so, it's hard writing jokes is hard and getting attention is awesome and so when you steal people's joke writing to get yourself attention it's unjust um anyway it's wrong there's, it's wrong it's you know there's no uh you know and i I, I I was in a video where we outed a joke once and it was amazing because this guy was stealing Mitch Mullaney's jokes and also how Mitch told the jokes. And it was great how we, we fooled this guy into thinking he was doing a showcase. So uh, we do the showcase and then we busted them live. And it's really, I think they took the video down because they didn't want to get sued, but it was, it was at the improv lab and everyone in the room knew, but this guy. So the, the, the energy in this room was something I've never felt before. Like it was Ari Shafir in the back, Mac Lindsay, legendary door comic. And we were all just waiting for that moment where he realizes, oh, I'm about to get outed. And it slowly happens. And it was like being at a Kiss concert meets a Stanley Cup final. And to see this guy backtracking, oh, uh, well, I wrote those jokes for Mitch. He told me I could do them. I'm like, I'm pretty sure he didn't tell you to do those jokes. Uh, so, I mean, but... The non-comics who would watch the YouTube videos were like, this is bullying. You guys were mean to this guy. And it's like, well, you don't understand why we were mean to this guy. He was stealing a deceased comics act. That's just wrong. And Carlos Mencia doing, uh, you know, the wall joke by Ari Shafir, which was probably the worst example of his joke stealing. Like he's stolen many more other jokes, uh, you know, and, and Rogan outing him. Uh, to non-comics that that video of him rogan storming the stage uh you know to a non-comedy fan you know to joe schmo worker who works at dairy queen and it's just a you know watch his comedy oh this is bullying it's like no joe's standing up for the little comics uh, you know it may not seem like that to the non-informed but 
that was putting Mencia on blast. So you're a joke thief. I'm going to call you out. And because I'm an eighth degree black belt, you're going to stand on this stage and take it. Which I will give Mencia credit. He did stay on the stage. Like he took it. But, uh, you know, when Rogan's calling you out, you don't really have a choice. Um, the Yeah, but I like the theater of it. Because, like, what stand-up is theater. And, and judicial acts of judicial justice are theater. Like, the, the justice system courtrooms are theater rooms, really. And you have to present your case uh, in an entertaining fashion to make the jury laugh. Look, it's all just theater here, but... Comedy has a good way of taking care of their own, you know, which I think is, uh, I think it's important. But anyway. Uh, well, with joke thieving, it does, because the word spreads. Like, if you steal jokes, it, it spreads. And like, uh, but, you know, we go back to, you can get away with murder if you're famous uh, in the comedy world. Like, Mencia still works, you know. Uh, it hasn't quite been the same. South Park put him on blast. Uh, and then the Rogan thing. Uh, well, I think the Rogan thing happened first and then the South Park episode. So, uh, uh, you know, it's discouraging to see him still working, but, you know, his on Tiger Belly, it was like, okay, maybe he'll come clean and just say, hey, man, I, I sold jokes. I was wrong. No, he doubles down. So that's why he's definitely not a comics comic. Uh, one guy, you take care of the little guys, uh, the, CIA of the comedy store, Earl Skako. We have a sponsor for this program, ACBD Remedy. Go to acbdremedy.com and get yourself some cannabis oil. Use promo code ERIC, that's E-R-I-C, for 20% off your order. Um, I will not be performing in Las Vegas October 16th. Klaus Schwab Jr. will be performing uh, the 500th episode of the tinfoil hat podcast in las vegas at diversion amusements uh there's a show i believe 7 p.m and 9 30 p.m you'll probably see klaus schwab jr at both of those i don't agree with anything he says he is a douchebag oligarch um you uh but he also sponsors his program uh his instagram does so at klaus schwab jr on instagram um, I'll also be Eric Hollerbeck will be performing. Sometimes I get gigs, you know, sometimes I get gigs, which is great. So I'll be through uh, New Orleans and Lafayette, Louisiana between October 25th and 28th. Go to erichollerbach.com for details. Click the calendar button. That's it. This has been episode 320 of Highway Diary. Thanks to my guest, Earl Skakel. See you, dude.